Hey everybody, this episode isn't just HOT! And it's not just BLAZING HOT! But it's... So hot it's burned the flesh from your hands! That smells really gross! So, here we go with Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 61! Comics collecting in the 90s, mail order, and the hype machine. So just how far down do you want to go? Well, we could talk it out over a cup of joe. And you could look deep into my eyes like I was a supermodel. Uh-huh. You and me, baby, no one else we could trust We'll say nothing to no one, no how Or we bust and never crack a smile Or flinch or cry for nobody Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and I've got something really awesome for you guys this time around. It is the first part of a two-part podcast crossover with Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box. Mike and I sat down a while ago just to sit and talk about collecting comics in the 1990s and some of the things that were, I don't know, emblematic of that time. Both of us were teenagers at the time in the early 90s and and we're in our 20s by the time that decade ended. So we started collecting around then and then kind of lived through it all. We lived through the 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 image the extreme stuff we lived through all of the hype and the crash and everything else that came out with it and uh so we sat down and we talked collecting comics in the 90s and on this episode you're going to hear us talk about ordering comics through the mail mile high comics american comics entertainment this month and all those ads you used to see in comic books that advertise all the comics you actually were looking for that your lcs didn't have and uh so and and so and and he and i are going to talk about that after a commercial break here and then after you're done listening to this go on over to michael bailey's views from the long box which you can find at viewsfromthelongbox.com and listen to episode 233. It should be up a day or two after this one is. He and I sat down and talked about Wizard. Yes, Wizard Magazine, the hype machine comics magazine of the 1990s. Uh, We talked a little bit about the magazine itself, and then we walked through an entire issue from about 1996. So uh, you've got two great episodes coming your way, and the first one will be here right after these messages, so stick around. Fair. 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 
Joker sandwiches for the price of one. This is a stick. I love this place. Stick your sandwich. You can get it nowhere else. Not Wendy's, not McDonald's. Buy one, get one free. Can't beat this deal with this. I love this place. You buy one double cheeseburger, get the second one for free. This place. We got two flame broiled double cheeseburgers for the price of one. Why would you go anywhere else? You buy one, you get one free. I love this place. <laughs> 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. has cookies and cream between the chocolate and that great cookie crunch. New cookies and cream Twix, another one of life's great kicks, Twix. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Longbox, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide. 
every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. Scaled it, jumped it, skied it, surfed it. Rode it, dove it, flew it, crashed it. Never slammed it, never guzzled it. New Pepsi Max, maximum cola taste and no sugar. Did it, dug it, savored it, relished it. Live life to the max, new Pepsi Max. And uh, we are back. Now, this is uh, this is a really interesting uh, topic for this episode in that um, I've been doing a lot of comic stuff lately, and it's ground that's been tread before, uh, even on this show, as well as over on other shows such as uh, the Quarterbin Podcast, and that's comics collecting, comics collecting in the 90s. And, and sharing some experiences about that. And uh, I think that if you were to gather like three or four episodes of this um, and the Quarter Room podcast, uh, maybe some Fire and Water shows, as well as my guests' podcast, you'd actually have almost like a little bit of a, not like a mega crossover, but, but something where you could get like a decent history of what it was like to collect comics in the 90s. And, and uh, this episode is going to talk about really specifically uh, some of the different ways we got comic books and some of the mail order companies that we dealt with when uh, the internet did not exist for comics the way it does now or at all really and we were a couple of teenagers trying to get our hands on as many books as we possibly could uh, with limited money time and uh, vehicles and to to bring us along on this journey is somebody who is uh, was the first person I thought of, and that is somebody. He is the host of a number of podcasts, but uh, most importantly, Views from the Long Box, which will be doing the companion or follow-up episode to this crossover where we'll be talking about Wizard Magazine. Uh, please welcome back my good friend, Michael Bailey. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. It, it, it's kind of funny because... Uh, I recently had a house guest uh, for when the, the movie that decided to uh, have an uglier war uh, than the Man of Steel wars. <laughs> if, if, if Man of Steel was Korea, I honestly think Batman v Superman is going to end up being Vietnam. <laughs> um, but uh, he was joking because I was telling him some ideas I've been having for the show. And a couple are actually recorded. I'm just ready, just waiting, literally waiting to, to edit them. And um, he's just like, you're doing a lot of anniversary shows this year. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's, 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 you know, when, when you do a hodgepodge show and you know this, yeah, uh, when it's not an index show, you don't struggle for topics, but you struggle for topics. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, anniversary episodes are just so easy, but I'm trying not to do like, there will be no Dark Knight Returns anniversary show this year. 
mm-hmm. uh, because one, I've already done it over on Bailey's Batman podcast, and two, that's obvious. You know, yeah. I may get that band back together for Batman Year One, but I want to talk about the 25th anniversary of X Men Number One. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of 90s stuff on views as the year continues to unfold. Yeah. Uh, and, and that has everything to do with the fact that it because it's been 20 years since certain things, you kind of get that nostalgia for it. Like, I, I suddenly realize what our parents were going through in, like, 1985, 1986. I get it now. I really do. Yeah, you 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 can grasp the big chill on a level that you mm-hmm. never could when I you were younger. Visit that film. Yeah, i i have a I have a, an original release VHS of that. I hope to God no one ever does that for our generation, because Jesus, I hear enough Nirvana on the radio as it is. I don't need to hear a freaking movie where they're dancing around. And how do you dance around a kitchen making dinner to that? So. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, thank you for having me on. This this is one of those things that that you and I talk about from time to time, especially on Facebook, uh, because as we've joked so many times in the past, we had the same childhood. We did, we uh, and we watched the same shows, and we we read a lot of the same comics enough that we can talk about the ads we saw. So, you know, I collected the Superman books, you collected the Titans. Yeah. The, the house ads were pretty much the same for both. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, there's a commonality there. Yeah. Uh, and I was really excited because this gets to go to like the early, early days of me collecting comics. Yeah. Cause, cause we, um, now you first, you first seriously started collecting, Probably around the same time I was kind of, or, or at least your your bio, um, if you go back, uh, listeners, if you go back, or sorry, listeners, both of you, if you go back and listen to, it's what, episode like 87 and goes all the way to 99, 100 reviews from the long box, you did this monster epic biography through comics yeah. That is the entire reason this podcast exists, by the way. So, well, I, sort I, of. I don't know whether to apologize or to No, feel, it was... I mean, I, I mean I'm obviously okay. flattered, but so still. <laughs> the long, okay, the long and the short of it was, you did this biography. It was like, here are all these comics, and here's what was happening in my life and, and things like that. And it started about 87, and um, I remember listening to it like I picked it up right around when you were in 1998. So I went back and listened starting in 1987 and going all the way up to the 1988 episode and then beyond and was shoveling snow because it was that winter where we just kept getting snow and thinking to myself that I used to write stuff like that. I used to have um, a column in my college paper, a blog for a while. And I was like, why don't I get back to writing pop culture and what I remember about it. And that's how pop culture of came out. So it was just kind of like, it wasn't that you, it was like, it was basically kind of got me into a place where like, I remember what I liked to write about because I, I, I have been doing it for so long and then I hadn't been doing it. And I was like, yeah, I should do this again. And the pot, the podcast kind of came out of that after what, after a while where I was like, I really should make this into a podcast. So you are indirectly responsible for us sitting here today. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, so you get all the credit and all the blame as well. <laughs> well, I, uh, and, and you're, you're going to be doing your own similar series and I'm really looking forward to that. I was thinking yeah. since next year is the 10th anniversary of views, uh, as a podcast oh, Wow, yeah. that maybe as kind of a sequel to that do 2000 through 2006 leading up to the June episode when I launched, mm-hmm. um, but then I'm like, is it going to be, is it going to be as good? Because that happened as a fluke. I didn't plan for that yeah. to turn into what it did. It started with this really simple idea. I'm just going to talk about the comics that happened when I was, at. and then it just turns into like this, like Wonder Years, the Next Generation, almost. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's as good as that. It was just you know because because my life is pretty complex. No, it's um, it's pretty boring. So I, uh, you know, and I never, I never had a Winnie Cooper because if I dated a, a girl that looked like Dana Mc, Danica McKellar in high school, I would be probably talking about it more. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it was just one of those things where like, if I, if I, if I do 2000 through 2006, you know, or, or, or to 2007 to the point where I started the show, like, a lot of that stuff's been talked about and, yeah. you know, and, and it, it doesn't have that same cachet. I mean, I'd be talking, you know, like there'd be things and interesting things in my life to discuss, like, you know, me and my wife get being together and getting engaged and getting married and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the comics that were going on around that same time, but I'd rather, instead of doing that, like take the storylines that I would talk about and just do episodes about them. Yeah. And and it's not like your 20s and 30s are inherently boring or anything, but the the period you were covering was, you were from what, you were about 10 until... I was 11. I was 11 11 until I was 23. Yeah, which is is so much different than the time from when you're 23 to about 30 or 31. Even if things do happen, it's, there's this sort of I've just, you know, you, you turn around at 18 and you look back at yourself at 10 and you can believe that was eight years ago. I turn around now and I look at back at myself at 30. I'm like, it does not feel like eight years have passed. You know, it's kind of like yeah. you hit that when you when you're watching a movie. Um, like like um, last last year, my students and I were reading Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, and if you're familiar with that play, you may be familiar with the Amanda Bynes movie, She's the Man, which is a teen movie version of Twelfth Night. So we were watching the movie, and I was looking at the Netflix envelope or the copyright date, and I'm like, and I, I just kind of like quietly in class, I was like, holy crap, this movie's almost ten years old, and it was just one of those things where it's like you don't realize sometimes, like how long it's been since certain things have happened when you're this old yet when you're 18, you know, 1990, uh, uh, you know, 1987 or whatever seems like incredibly far away because you've just gone through so much too. So yeah, 1987 does seem like a long, long time ago time ago, you know, but, and, and the funny thing is next year I'm going to be celebrating 30 years as a collector. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to do, you know, like, what do I do for that? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's kind of weird. I know exactly what I want to do for the 10th anniversary episode. Um, it's going to require a scheduling nightmare, like the likes of which have not been seen yet. Uh, but uh, I am really looking forward to your series. I heard your trailer 
And I was just like, oh, awesome. Cool. Somebody else is doing that. So I get to be on the other end where I get to just listen and not have to edit it. I will be court recording a lot of that in advance, sir. <laughs> so that <laughs> I can just release it on the day. Because that's how that's going to work. Um, but you and I had very, I think, similar experiences as young children buying comics where it was a a newsstand, a spinner rack mm-hmm. somewhere. In my case, it was the local, they, we used to call them stationary stores where they were usually have names like card and gift in them. So it was basically, um, you know, a bunch of Hallmark cards, some stuffed animals and stuff, some office supplies because, you know, the big office supply stores really weren't around back then. And, um, and then essentially a newsstand, newspapers, magazines, and comic books. And then, you know, cigarettes and stuff and uh sometimes the supermarket and that was about it and then at some point you or i you and i you know separately obviously discovered comic stores mm-hmm. um mine happened to move in next door to an iron on t-shirt shop it, it had been a. It had been you know, a, I have a feeling we're we're gonna have to stop a lot during these. Yeah, and explain what these things are. Okay, explain to the, so, to the younger listeners like what the hell we're talking about. So, so so younger listeners, Stella, this is what an iron-on T-shirt was, because <laughs> you were a freaking zygote when this happened. Um, <laughs> you went to the store, and the store was just wall to wall of pictures of of iron-ons, and you you told them you know usually they had numbers on them so like number 19 or whatever and you chose a shirt color shirt sweatshirt t-shirt whatever and they would take they would see if they had it It was like in a big filing cabinet and they put it on the big um it's basically a huge iron that something very similar to if you've ever had to mount a photograph onto uh you know a mounting board or whatever which um, I do at work all the time. Yeah, now, yeah. So it's basically, what they used at the, at the store, and they would put it. It down. had a very specific smell to it. Yes. Like when 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 they applied it and that steam came up, mm-hmm. I'm really wondering if there was like lung damage from that after yeah. repeated exposure. Because I'll, I'll get a whiff of it sometimes when I'm smelling almost like burning plastic or something. I can't yeah. really place it either. And then they would carefully peel it off. And you, they were really good at it. They, it never, um, it never ever, they were really good at not having part of it come off the shirt. Um, and sometimes if it was special, you'd get your name in puffy letters on the back of the shirt. And, and what you gotta, what you gotta imagine folks is that this is one of those things that much like a firehouse subs like today or, you know, like a, like any kind of franchising store. There was a pyramid scheme behind this, I'm willing to bet, <laughs> where they had meetings in hotel ballrooms and they sold people franchise rights to open these things. But they were huge. You could, like a lot of them, You, it, it's where you got your Ghostbuster shirt. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. And stuff like that. So, and yeah. and if you ever went to like, like uh, and I think they're still around, the inheritors are these are the airbrush t-shirt places. Yes, uh, that were really also big, especially around like the uh, the shore, like yeah. Ocean City, Maryland had a bunch of them on the boardwalk. Mm-hmm. So, 
yeah, yeah places they... like that. Virginia Beach has a bunch of them too. And um, redneck Riviera. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the um, place that we had called the Special Tea. See what? Oh yeah, see what they did there. Um, <laughs> this place. But anybody, you talk to anybody of my generation and slightly older than me from my hometown, and you mentioned the Special Tea. They like know exactly what they're talking about, and they can and they can tell you how. You go in there and you order it, but they also had a registry or they had a, they kept a record. So if it was for a kid's birthday part, a kid's birthday, and you told them that they wrote it down so that you could check with them if somebody else had gone there and gotten Chris, the Ghostbusters sweatshirt. Oh. It was pretty ingenious because we have this now for like, you know, um, Amazon wish lists and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, the place next door had been at one point it was a hair salon and the hair salon moved across the street to uh, to a bigger store and then it was um, an antique place and one day we're coming out and there's a comic book store in there amazing comics it was 1984 the store is still in business although um, the owner retired a couple of years ago and sold it and the new owner moved it about a block over to a bigger store and renamed it Android's Amazing Comics and I've been in there a couple of times going up in the someone's guy. a Simpsons fan yeah yeah but he but I will tell you the new owner um, is really really nice oh good and awesome he's a great guy and, and friends I've known for 20-25 years who still go to the store because they're still in Long Island have nothing but good things to say um, but so that was the place where I bought comics for the better part of almost 20 years, you know, on and off. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's funny when I think about those days because we had a couple seven elevens in the area mm-hmm. and, the, and they all sold different comics. It was really weird. You would think a, a chain like that would have similar books. And, but mainly when I bought comics, it was at the Trexler Town Mall, which was kind of going to seed in 1987. Uh, it yeah. was really bad when I left in 95. That's when things were starting to close up and all that. But, you know, you had it was anchored by like a grocery store and a department store. And the grocery store, the Super Fresh, had a spinner rack. There was a Walden Books. And they had the nice spinner rack, and you could get books at Walden Books that you couldn't get in traditional newsstands. Yeah, they had they had trades, and they had original graphic novels, on and they had new rack. format books from yeah. DC too, which you normally wouldn't get outside of a comic shop. And then further down, across from the Carvel ice cream. Uh, which was a big deal when I was a kid, and I still uh-huh. love Carvel ice cream cakes. You can take your Baskin Robbins ice cream cake, and you can go straight to hell. Is what you can do. I don't get... want I don't want real cake in my ice cream cake. Yeah, no, okay? the crunchies. Yeah, I want the crunchy stuff. Yes. you know, like Cookie Puss and Cookie yes. O Puss. Uh, but there was a newsstand, uh, and it was just called the newsstand. And you know, I was I was joking with with Andy about this that like a news agent in the UK is pretty much the same place. You get cokes and yeah. candy and cigarettes and stuff. But this place was covered in comics. Like I don't know what setup or who did their ordering, but if you couldn't find it at the Super Fresh and you couldn't find it at the Walden Books, it was probably there. And if it wasn't at the Seven Eleven, it did not exist on planet Earth. Because this is before I was going to Beachhead. Yeah. And I wouldn't go to Beachhead until a year 
almost a year and a half into me buying comics. Mm-hmm. So back issues were ne- were something that were mythical, except for in the comics themselves. Yeah, and that's basically because that's basically where we're where we're gonna get at too, because. Um, Recent back issues, at least in the very early in 1991 or so, when I started collecting for real, if it was a book that was still available on the newsstand and I missed an issue, one of the stationery stores in town probably still had it. You know, okay. So if it was an issue of, say, Superman or Detective or Batman or Action, and I had, um, I'd missed it or whatever, if I went over just a block or two, just around the block corner to the store, they had a tendency to keep some of those books on the shelves for a little bit longer just because, you know, they just to move it. And uh, so if I really miss something, I could get it. But otherwise, you're right. You know, the only place that you could find back issues that you didn't, you, if you couldn't find them at your local comic shop was through the actual comic books themselves and not through ordering through DC or Marvel but through a number of different comic book stores that advertised in comic books. And the th- I remember three of them specifically. There was East Coast Comics, which I never dealt with, um, mm-hmm. even though it was the, probably the closest to my house, and for whatever reason, I just never dealt with them. Um, the two we're really going to talk about today, uh, we'll talk briefly about the first one, which is mile high comics, which I think that if you think mail order comics, most people would probably first think of mile high comics. Yeah, because they were, they were really, you know, and you're going to get into the history of it, but they Mm -hmm. were pretty much one of the early well known mail order systems and mail order goes back to the, you know, way back. But mm-hmm. in a more organized front, uh, I picked up this book years ago, and I'm so glad I did because it was a treasure trove of information. It was called The Golden Age of Comic Book Fandom, and it was put together by this guy named Bill Shelley, who was one of the early people in fandom, in organized comic book fandom. And he basically traced it from the nineteen the mid-1950s, when Julius Schwartz started bringing back the superheroes, to mm-hmm. about 1969, where he talks about one of the guys not reading Green Lantern, Green Arrow anymore because the relevance was not his Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, proving we have learned nothing um, <laughs> in almost 50 years of, of organized fandom. But basically, one of the things, and Jeff Loeb has talked about this in interviews, is when you wrote into comics, you gave your full address. They printed the full address. Yeah. It's not something you would do today. No, but it was it was a way for people to kind of like, do I have to explain what a pen pal is? Do I? I I mean, well, and that's how um, that's how some of those APA. Yeah. Am I using the term rightly? Yeah. Appas got started like there was Titan talk and there were a few other ones that that got started in the late 70s and early 80s because these people would write to each other through. In fact, Wizard Magazine had. In its letters page along the bottom, um, I don't know, um, for a while had like people seeking pen pals. Yeah, and it was basically because you yeah. were you were the only freak in your area. Yeah. 
you had to find other people to talk to. But what this kind of turned into is once these articles started popping up about, hey, you can actually sell these old comics for money because, mm-hmm. you know, the only way, and, and still to a certain extent, the only way you could, it's like, well, I like comics because they're cool. Uh-huh. And uh, I love Superman and I love Batman and they're really great characters. Uh-huh. And uh, they've got these really great stories. I mean, these writers, they craft these things and they can go on for years. Uh-huh. And this one, you know, it's like worth $150. Really? And that's what gets like normal John Q. Muggle. Yeah. You know, that what's, that's what gets their attention. But what this turned into is people like starting up little grassroots uh, mail order stuff. Yeah, and they would put things into because you you know if you know if anybody knows about anything about print media, the way that print media makes its money is through selling issues, but it's also through advertising. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're putting an ad in a comic, you're paying for that ad space. And that was one of the things that made Mile High so different because Mile High could afford to buy full page ads, sometimes spreads, like right in the middle of the book, right in the middle be. of the book. Um, and we're the other company we're going to, we're going to cover, we're going to talk about in in a little while as well as American entertainment and entertainment this month, but, but we'll stick with mile high for now because we're kind of at the dawn of this whole phenomenon. And, and I've noticed going through old, old comics as we read them and podcast about them, that in addition to say the big mile high ad, there would be other services of like thousands of comics right in for a catalog, like in the hodgepodge ads, Mm-hmm. Next to the ad that told you that you could, where you could get the fake dog poop or graduate high school through the mail or you know the Learn tr- the deadly art of kung the, fu yeah you know, what is ninja you know and um, that was an actual ad I read it Yubiwaza uh, yeah exactly and, or Charles Atlas and all that so just those hodgepodge ads and there would be sometimes just thousands of comics through the mail here's the catalog or some cases it was like a half page ad and somebody had listed all the books they had but they were so the print was so tiny you couldn't read it even with like a magnifying glass because the print process wasn't too great. And what made Mile High stand out was the size of the ad, the fact that you could read the ad, and it was a yellow ad with black lettering. Mm -hmm. And it jumped out at you in a way that ran like the little box with somebody telling you that they had a bunch of comics they could sell you that were for sale or we buy comics or whatever, uh, couldn't. Um, and yeah, for me, I didn't get a co- There were, there were two comic stores in the area. Three, if you count the one that lasted about nine months before going out of business in about 1993. Um, but there was all, there was one up in the mall and like, we have like, remember the scene in mall rats where they go to like the, the shitty mall to see the, it's basically the, a, uh, they call it the dirt, mall. the dirt mall. It's we, a- yeah, we had the dirt mall in my town. Sunbet was mall. it more of a flea market than a mall? No, it was actually it was kind of a mall. It okay. actually it was okay. a mall, but but the anchor store usually malls are a die a dying breed. Um, I do not have to remind Stella what a mall is. There's a mall near us, um, but. Uh, <laughs> I give her so much <laughs> shit for being younger than me, um, but uh, you know where she was born, right? Uh, Allentown. Oh, really? Because she grew up in 1986. In, oh, wow. She, she grew up in like uh, in upstate New York. 
and that's when I moved back to Allentown. We we, we had a nice little conversation about that. Oh, once. really? <laughs> it's really funny. But no, you're Swear right. Insert the Billy Joel song. Yeah, that's. You've never heard that. Living here in Bethlehem is what we're doing. <laughs> uh, no, but you're right. There, there, there was a hierarchy of malls. Yeah, there was, uh, like I told you, the Trexler Town Mall. Mm. That wasn't the nice mall. The nice mall was the Lehigh Valley Mall. Yeah, that was more in Allentown. But next to the Lehigh Valley Mall was the Whitehall Mall that had, in 1994, still had a Woolworth. Ooh, yeah. Um, the South Shore Mall in Bay Shore had the Woolworth. And uh, that was the one we usually went to because it still had a Macy's. The The Sunvent Mall had two anchor stores. Um, for years, it was a home improvement, local home improvement store called Rickle, which is basically like a smaller-sized Home Depot. Mm-hmm. And on the other end, though, the other anchor store in the mall was a Pathmark supermarket. So next to the Pathmark, you went, you went there – you went to that mall for three reasons – uh, I know there, there were no. There were five stores you go to the mall. There was a bookstore and a record store. Mm-hmm. There was Record World and, and and Wordsworth Books, which were right across from each other. Um, there was for a while. There was I don't remember. No, I, I did a I did a blog post about this a while ago. Uh, a kind of a catalog in store pickup service merchandise store type store called Consumers that people used to go to just to see if they had anything, but they didn't. There was a gap. That was a big deal. That we had a gap, um, and that gap was open for the longest time. And then there was there was a really really good pizza place, and then there was a place called Sunvet Coin and Stamp, which also had comics. And so that was basically if Amazing was didn't have the back issue you were looking for, it might be at Sunvet Coin and Stamp. If if that if that was it, you were kind of shit out of luck unless your parents happened to take you somewhere where there was a comic store. Because I didn't get a car until after I graduated high school. So what did I have to do? Well, one time I can't remember if I either wrote or I called for the Mile High Comics catalog. And the Mile High Comics catalog, it was on flimsy kind of newsprinty yeah. paper. It was huge. Mm-hmm. And um, and I would sit there and I would I would pour over it and and just to give a little background as to how this came about. So Mile High was founded by Chuck Rosansky, and it's this. Um, I mean, it even has it has its own Wikipedia page. It's kind of a like a legend in the retail business, at least in the comics retail business, because he started this business out of his basement. He just was he had a ton of comics and he was making money. Like crazy because I I think you're right. He was there weren't that many businesses like this at that yeah. point. And um, the key thing for him was that he in in '79 he purchased this huge collection. And um, I've read I've read some not so nice things from people, and but I don't know if they were people who have any information about this or if they're just people who are, you know, your typical internet going on half the information, um, you know, the, the type of Filling people... in the other half with, with whatever half-baked theories. Yeah, exactly. But based, yeah, because there are a number of people who are basically saying that Rosansky screwed the person out of money and blah, blah, blah. But long story short, he purchased and for... Now, is this the warehouse he bought? I don't. Or is it because because there's two parts to the story. Mm-hmm. Part one is 
he basically, and, and this is me reading this years ago and and, and, and kind of remembering it, but I don't know if he had a business where he, he, he like bought things from estate sales or whatever, mm-hmm. but he basically happened upon this golden age comic book collection. And I mean, we're talking Detective 27, Action yeah. Number One, the whole nine yards. And he got that and used that to kind of start uh, one of the nascent comic book stores in the 70s in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And at the time, you know, we have Diamond now. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the 80s and 90s, you had a bunch of different distributors. Yeah. Uh, this was before there was really organized distribution, too. So a comic book shop was like a huge deal because it was kind of weird because it wasn't like now where DC and Marvel and everybody deal with Diamond and Diamond deals with the comic shops and the comic shops get their stuff from Diamond and hate them. Yeah. Um, and then that ju- I'm just going on like not only anecdotal evidence, I, I witnessed some of the screwing over that Diamond can do. And not, and not like they're doing it on purpose. It's just when you're the only game in town. Yeah. It, it kind of it, you can get kind of screwed over, you know. It's but it's not a monopoly, and you can't say it's a monopoly. Yeah, um, so that's a Comcast. But uh, but then there was this whole like sequence of events where basically he bought out a warehouse mm-hmm. where at the time the way comic books were distributed is that there were distributors throughout the United States that bought the books and, as their name suggests, distributed them to. Mom and pop bookstore, mom and pop, you know, like candy shops and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, it was a thing rife with corruption because they originally you had to return the entire comic or you had to rip off the cover uh-huh. and send the cover in. Yeah. And suddenly coverless comics are showing up, tend to a bag, but you were supposed to destroy those, but no one did. Then they went to the affidavit system. We're basically at the end of the month. You signed a legally binding document that said I destroyed these, and they destroyed them by putting them in a back room. And apparently, this was like a warehouse of that kind of stuff. Okay, where it was just old, like books from years and years of this person having a, a, a distribution system. And it, if you read Chuck, I don't know if it's still online. Chuck Rosakis had a uh, Rosansky. Why do I want to call him Rosakis? <laughs> Uh, because Bob Rosakis like is the, the answer, answer man. man. <laughs> uh, Chuck Rosansky had a blog on through Mile High Comics, the website, where he he just told this entire story, and it was like a movie playing out in my head. And I'm not trying to jump on your notes. I apologize. No, no, no. Go ahead. You're you're filling in blanks that I didn't. Um, but because, because the 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 other company we're going to talk about, I got into a lot more detail. But um, basically, he. This is what launched his mail order business. Mm-hmm. And when and that's why starting around 1980, 1981, especially in Marvel books, yeah. you'll see those two page ads you were talking about. Yeah. And I remember in 1980, like late, it was either 1987 or 1988, somewhere around there, I convinced my father to let me order books from it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I finally said, I want to, I, I want to try this. Can I have like ten bucks? He's like, yeah, I'll pay ten. You know, choose ten dollars worth of comics, and I'll pay the shipping and all that. And yeah. they came in a box, mm-hmm. and that's where I got my first copy of Adventures of Superman number four twenty four, and that's where I got issues one through three of Transformers the movie, the uh, Marvel adaptation, 
and stuff like that. And it was it was it, it, it was magic. Um, oh yeah, and it is something that has not lost its luster thirty years later. No, yeah, because you and I both get comics all the time off of eBay or through my comic shop or even through Mile High. Um, and you get that package in the mail, you're like, ooh, I know what this is. And it is it is you still get that little rush like a little kid. I mean, I used to basically, you know, in addition to whatever else I wanted for my birthday and Christmas, I would fill out an order form. And this is when I was a teenager. And say, you know, these are the comics I want. Because my parents knew nothing from comic book collecting, you know? So, I mean, I could I could give my parents a list of CDs that I wanted, and they would find the CDs. Yeah, because those are, those are pretty easy to find. Yeah. I mean, it, Christmas of 1990, I finally convinced my parents to buy me comics for Christmas. They balked at this for like four years. <laughs> but finally my dad said, okay, here's your Christmas money, basically. I'll write the check, you order it. And what happened was as what happened with Mile High from time to time is you would order something through a catalog, but they would sell out of it. Yeah. So what happened is a check came back with the books and my dad's like, crap, okay, I'm going to deposit this. Just do what you want with it. And that's when my sister took me to the comic shop and I filled it in. But, but I got like a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. that, that Christmas all from Mile High. It was my only comic book Christmas really. Yeah. And, it, again, it's it's just something that's you, I really can't describe how special Mile High is, which is kind of almost sad of, of of what you know. It's it's not like there's anything wrong with Mile High Comics now. I mean, no. there are times where you can go like I deal with Mile High Comics through eBay. Mm-hmm. That's usually if I order through Mile High, I order through eBay because their site is the same site they've had since I first went on it in 1998. Yeah, it is. It is old. And the only thing that I, I and, and I'm not, this isn't the Rag on Mile High comics segment of the episode or anything. No, it's but, not. But they do have a tendency to have, I don't know if you want to call their pricing more realistic than other people on eBay, but um, uh, like I was saying, when, when we got on we got on the air, uh, before we went on the air, I bought the most expensive comic I've ever bought through Mile High Comics. It was the New Teen Titans number two, which is the first appearance of Deathstroke. And I paid, it was between $30 and $40. I want to say it was about $35 or $36 for it. And it was just one of the, it was at that point where it was one of the very few that I needed to finish the run. And I had money because I had been, you know, working all summer and was going into my second year college. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to order this comic. And I ordered it, and I got it, and I was very happy that I got it. And I think I actually called and ordered it because I think I had a credit card at that point or something. Because if you called them and you placed an order through them or you double-checked on things, they were pretty good at telling you whether or not they were in stock. Mm-hmm. Um, their customer service, at least the few times I actually had to deal with them on the phone, um, even as far back as when I was a teenager and they knew a teenager was calling, I will give them a lot of credit. Their customer service is pretty solid. Um, but yeah, but the, the books would be, would run a little bit more expensive than what you might find nowadays on eBay where you're paying 99 cents for something, you know, with free shipping or something like that. So, but yeah, that website is, is very, very hard to navigate 
because it's very, very old and hasn't been updated. And um, aside from pricing, has not yeah, been updated I, for for many, many years. It's it's not like my comic shop, mm-hmm. uh, which is another mail order place. Yeah, that was out of Texas. Uh, that has a pretty nice interface, uh, and they're really open about pricing. And, and you know what I like about my comic shop is that their different gradings like mm-hmm. are really clear. Yeah, like you don't you don't have to look through columns. Essentially, it's it's yeah. all right there and in, in, in pretty <laughs> in glorious HTML. Yes. Uh, but yeah, but when I deal, like I said, when I deal with Mile High now, it's usually through eBay. Because their eBay store is so much easier to navigate yeah. than, than their website. And they, I mean, Smile High's credit, they have, they have gone, they have stayed very steady mm-hmm. and weathered changes in the market pretty well, um, which is very admirable because a lot of stores came and went, especially through the 90s. Um, yeah, but it's, it just sounds like, like you said, you and I, really started collecting comics um, and got into it in, in a time like right before the, the boom really happened. And we didn't have the internet. And I know that, no. and I know that sounds like an old man yelling at a cloud here, but at the same time, <laughs> that's the context that you used mail order catalogs through. And I loved the only thing I loved more than getting that catalog was going to the library and going into the reference section and sitting down because you couldn't check out books out of the out of the some of the reference shelves you had to keep them in the library and getting the latest edition of the Overstreet Price Guide yeah and just sitting down with it and just looking through it and not to see how what my comics were worth but just to see it's how you saw covers that you wouldn't normally exactly, get to see. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You found out when a first appearance was of somebody and and things like that. And we'll we'll talk about the Wizard Price Guide later. Um, yes, but, yes, we will. But you had but you had things like that, and that was basically it. Was almost how we got our our comics education in a big way because we didn't always have access to a lot of information about comics and. Now, nearly 30 years later, you and I have read quite a number of books about superheroes. Yes. And things like, um, you know, you you mentioned the Golden Age of Comic Book Fandom. I've read Comic Book Nation. We've both read Marvel, The Untold Story. Um, I have one, two, three, four, five Les Daniels books staring back at me. Yeah, I'm in the the same boat. You know, you... you, it's not so much, you know, a couple of old men yelling at clouds, but they <laughs> said, you know, I just hit 40 and you're kind of staring down the barrel. Yep. Uh, so, but it, it is so nice now. I mean, there, there's a part of me that, that, that misses the old days, but it is really nice right now that if I want to see a cover or I want to know what issue something happened in, or I want to see, you know, like, like, you know, I was I was trying to find all the Chuck Dixon issues of Moon Knight because mm-hmm. I'm like, do I have those? I want to see if because because I'm you know there's stuff I'm getting rid of, there's stuff I'm keeping. Yeah, and it's basically if it's got Chuck Dixon's name on it, I'm keeping it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Mike's Amazing World of Comics and I plugged Chuck Dixon into the search engine of creators, and there there it is. Yeah. So I, I could find that out. And if I want to buy something, 
not only do I have a variety of places to do it, because I have that, I can now be kind of more of a, a choosy shopper. Where it's just like, well, I want that, but let me look on eBay because eBay, you know, e- eBay is, is one of the best examples of capitalism anywhere mm-hmm. because it's not what it's worth. It's what you're willing to pay, pay for, for it, it at that moment. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it, sometimes you're like, no, no, eBay. It's, it's like I was looking for an omnibus. So first place I went was in stock trades because I want to support the guys over at the Fire and Water Network. Yeah. And I feel like if I buy from in stock trades, I'm supporting them. And then I'm like, no, it's, uh, it's, I don't like that price. And then I went over to Amazon and I'm like, I really don't like that price because uh, sometimes Amazon's cray cray. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to eBay and finally narrowed it down. Now it's, you know, it's a little bit of legwork, but really when when you say legwork it's swipes on my phone so it's it's not like i'm looking through a freaking card catalog do we have to explain card no we're done no you don't have to explain card catalogs um but in all that but here you know with when, when with the mile high catalog i remember summer of 89 this is this is this is a pretty vivid memory of me sitting there with with a, a, a guy i knew who was one of my friends when i was a really little kid and then we stopped talking for a while because he was an asshole. Um, and then summer of 89, you know, Batman's big again. His mom and my mom were old friends. So we started kind of hanging out again that summer. Mm-hmm. And we would sit there with the Mile High catalog and just like, ooh, look at that. Ooh, look at that. Ooh, look at that. Because it was cheap newsprint, but it was information. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and that's and that's the thing is 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 you know now information is everywhere, but when you have an absence of it, anything is special. So the overstreet price guide was the thing. You know, I I, I never went to the library. I, I went to the bookstore mm-hmm. and just looked through it and never bought it. Yeah, um, <laughs> I see that too with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so, like all the time. Um, but it was. It's. A, it's. I remember using Overstreet, like an old Overstreet, uh, for the guy who was eventually became my brother-in-law. I was looking for John Byrne issues of X-Men. Mm-hmm. Now nowadays, that's really easy to find. Back then, it's like, who knows? Who knows what issue? So yeah, I, I love. You know, Mile High has a history to it, though. It, it, you know, yeah. Mile High is mentioned in the movie Comic Book Villains. Yes. That yes, James Robinson are. wrote and directed. So, this is something that is that you know it's a big deal. It's it's yeah. it's it's a a comic book store that has been in existence basically since the nineteen seventies. Yeah, and that, they're they're very much the old guard. Yeah, in a big way. And I don't agree with everything Chuck Rosansky has to say. Uh, he likes to blame Adventures of Superman number five hundred for the comic bust. No. Uh, because a bunch of people ordered it, and apparently that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And it's just like, really, really, that's 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 the rock you're choosing to build your church on. Okay, yeah. I I I have issues with that, both practical and personal. But we're gonna we're not gonna get lost down that rabbit hole. No, but, no, no, we're but, not. But, but, but here's a guy that's seen it all. Yeah, that has seen all the distributors and seen you know the, the wars and the booms and the busts and has managed to. To keep, I mean, if you look at comic uh, comic books in the early '90s, 
the Mile High Mega Store, and they would show you pictures of these gigantic comic shops in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And it makes you kind of want to go to Colorado. Now, there's other reasons to go to Colorado now, apparently, but mm-hmm. still, um, I don't know, legal pot and comic books. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good combo. Uh, not that I uh, do that because I hate the smell, but still, it's just... Mile High will always have that kind of nostalgic force, you know, that that, that feeling, that, that, that ineffable quality to it, that you hear the names, like... It's it's funny because for years I would you, you would see the Mile High books. I mean the ads. And yeah, I would say that the, the nice subscription service. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, the nice subscription service, the nice subscription service. Then I'm listening to Stella, and she's uh, used to be. I don't know if she still is uh, because I, I don't listen to ads sometimes on comic on yeah, podcasts. But she, it's one of her spot. It has been for a while. One of her sponsors. And when she said new issue comic Comics express, Express, I'm like, that's what that stands for. And yeah. I told her, I go, I have been reading comics for over 20 years now. I never knew what that stood for until you yeah. said, <laughs> yeah. And you talk about nostalgia, talk about mail order. The, it's not the darker side of it. <laughs> But there's the fly by night. Song. Yeah, there's a companion to this to Mile High because people, the first place you go to is Mile High Comics because, and I think it's because they survived everything and because they were they were one of the first, if not the first big one. But in 1986, Steve uh, Milo or Milo M I L O, and he eventually par- partnered with somebody named Andrew Moore. While well, he was a student at the University of Virginia, which is the school I'm currently attending for graduate classes uh, because it's literally five, six miles down the road from where I live. Uh, and my wife went there. Um, so, and she works there. Anyway, Milo founded this company out of his dorm room. Um, and, and I had, and I had said, I'm going to post links to these articles and the things that I found because I found an archive of an old article from the Cavalier Daily, which is the University of Virginia student newspaper from about 1986 that kind of talked about the new boom coming in comics and how comics aren't for kids. And he was running this business already. And, um, he started, he, he, uh, he's still, he's still, he's not in the comics industry anymore, but I Googled him and I found his LinkedIn profile. And, um, he, according to his LinkedIn profile, he used his knowledge and previous experience doing direct mail for political campaigns as a, in, in getting this company off the ground. And the company was called, originally called American Comics. And um, it eventually became American Entertainment. And these were the ads in comics in the early 90s that had some sort of very bright color to, they were, they were full color ads. They had a bright color um, character or something that was recent, that was big. And they were the ones whose comics were hot. And, 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 um, they took off, they took off, it was 86 or 87 or so. Um, he was running a full fledged comic book store and a mail order business out of Warrington, Virginia. It's about an hour North of Charlottesville where I am in 86. Uh, and, um, he noted that he was looking forward to opening a new store in Georgetown within the next year and, and hope by 88, he would be number one of the retail and order market, uh, mail order market. And by 91, they're making like seven figures 
and he is doing up to about $50,000 a day in business. And um, you and Jeff have covered many, many issues of Superman and Adventures in Action where these ads pop up. And you guys had a constant joke is that the, the there was American entertainment and entertainment this month. And the yes. ads are very similar. You guys had the constant joke that the name had to change to keep the lawyers happy. Well, there is actually a distinction. The company had three parts to it. There was a there was a retail store that was located in Georgetown, uh, which is in Washington D.C. In case your geography is not very good, um, called Another World, which would eventually morph into a mall store called Another Universe that would eventually that would, that would be gone by the late nineties. Uh, that was a retail store. You had American Comics, which was very, very similar to Mile High. It was selling back issues. And Entertainment this month was almost like the nice version, the um, nice meaning New Issue Comics Express version uh, side of, of American Entertainment in that they sold at a slight discount. I don't know if they did subscriptions, but you could pre-order new comics through Entertainment this month. And there were two separate catalogs sent out because in addition to ordering Mile High stuff, I actually got the inter- American Entertainment catalog and the Entertainment this month. And I never ordered pre-ordered comics through Entertainment this month. All my new comics came from my local comic store. But um, back issues a couple of times. And um, I think Mile High, you did provide alternates for some of your comics if you yeah. couldn't. If, if you didn't think they'd have them and you did that with American entertainment, but the difference between American and mile high was that, um, mile high was more reliable in this regard and American entertainment. You had to, it's almost like you had to choose your alternates carefully because nine times out of 10, that's what you ended up getting when you placed that order for that X-Men issue you were missing or something like in my case. And, um, but Milo, Milo uh, was profiled in the Washington Post about '91, and um, he was riding the speculation market for all it was worth. Um, there was a quote; it said that um, he had ordered Entertainment this month had ordered upwards of two hundred thousand copies of X Men number one, and. Then also quoted in that article is another comic book store owner. He says that he ordered 6,500 comics, um, copies of X-Men for, for like one store. And I'm, I'm $6,500, 65 and at 1500 for another. So he ordered about, it was, it was for two stores. It was 5,000 for one and 1500 for another across two stores. They don't even get like, I, I that's insane. Well, it, it, you know the, that was the market though, and that, that's that's the kind of funny thing is that right around the time Batman came out is where the speculator market really started taking off, and I know and I can trace it to then because there was a video that came out a how to collect comics video. I have it somewhere in this house. It was hosted by Frank Gorshin. Um. The Riddler. Yes. Uh, and that's how you can also tell it's the summer of 89, because that's the only reason they're pulling Frank Gorshin out to do something like this. Uh, not that he wasn't a good you know, entertainer. It's just, come on. But they, they interviewed co- this comic shop owner, and I swear to God, I want to find this guy, and I want to punch him dead in the face. I don't mean that. 
I mean, I don't mean that. Um, but he's just like, you know, when people come to us and, and, and we're like stockbrokers, you know, we, we tell them the comics that are going to be worth money. And I'm like, oh, so it's your fault. And, and that's the thing is it's not his fault. It's everybody's fault. Oh, yeah. That, that's the thing about the speculator market is everybody wants to everybody wants the Reichstag fire moment. You know where where they can kind of point to it and go, or you know, like you know, the, the you know the killing of um, well, I can't even remember that dude's name that started World War One. Oh, uh, Archduke Francis Ferdinand. Yeah, and the only reason I I, I suddenly remember the name is I started uh, singing "Take Me Out." Um, <laughs> yeah, I put that gag into my All Quiet of the Western Front episode. <laughs> but uh, but you know, like these these moments that that they want to call like you know, for lack of a better term, flashpoints. But it was such a such a complicated mess to begin with. But it was this type of ordering that kind of led to the fall. I mean, how did you think? I mean, I can only imagine it's like living like as a stockbroker in the eighties, mm-hmm. where you're 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 making you know millions of dollars and you're you're dating models and you're coked up all the time and maybe i watched wall street too many times as a teenager and i have an incorrect perception of what that world was like but that's that's the only thing i can imagine that you're sitting there going i'm gonna order sixty five hundred dollars worth of merchandise for this for this comic store flash forward to 1996 when my friend tom opened up a shop and he's like I was lucky enough to scrape up six months worth of rent. Yeah. Because <laughs> he yeah. wanted to have that in the bank before he opened the shop. <laughs> yeah. Well, and those and those 6,500 copies of X-Men number one found them in, found their way in for, into a five for a dollar sale at a comic sh- uh, show nine months a year later. Yeah. Because that. Because there was a lot. Yeah, when yeah. there's eight million of something, that's not a collectible. No, no, and and um, but Milo, like he's thirty years old and he's a millionaire, and they're quoting him in articles about comic books because he is rivaling Chuck Rosansky at this point. And um, like we all remember those ads, and and the, the I wanted to do just kind of a, an episode or, or something, because the question that I always had was. Whatever happened to American entertainment? Whatever happened to American comics entertainment this month? And it's an interesting story. I mean, basically, they were not able to survive the 90s is the short version of it. They got bought up, um, merged into another company called another university. Another universe eventually went under. But the details of which are kind of interesting. And um, you were the one who years ago on, on um, I think it was the Fortress blog, pointed everybody in the direction of an episode, a very old episode of two in one showcase. Yeah. And it was, um, Blake, I think was telling the story about, he no, got, it was, it, it was your good buddy chase. It was chase. Okay. Who, uh, he got appendicitis and his mom ordered the death of Superman through American entertainment. They sent him all the alternates while he was in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And his friend, Got like multiple copies of all the issues. It, it, it's kind of funny because because you know there was also a thing called New England Comics mm-hmm. uh, that ran ads, and this was really big. I remember this vividly from like eighty nine ninety 
Because it was when Batman was... <laughs> I say it was when Batman was hot. When has Batman not been hot since 1989? Yeah, but this was like Batman... Batmania yeah. 89 really has not been rivaled. And maybe that's just me, the old man again. But it was just... God, I honestly was, don't yeah. think it has. I, I, I honestly don't think that on a global cross-promotional level that you have that anybody has even touched Batman 89. People tried. Dick Tracy tried like hell the next year. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? To a certain extent, I look fondly on that. Mm-hmm. They had the t-shirt tickets. Yeah. Where if you wanted to see a midnight showing, back when midnight showings were not a thing, you bought a, a, a t-shirt and you had to wear the t-shirt to the movie theater and that was your ticket. Um but even you know, even with as big as the Avengers, and even you know, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises and all that, it's not like people carving Batman the bat symbol into the side of their heads, yeah, you know, right above their fades. So, but but I remember seeing that one and and looking at them and always wanting to know what T-shirts they were going to have and what trade backs. Mm-hmm. But the thing about American Entertainment and all the iterations of it. Is that they were slick ads? Yeah, they you know they, they always it always tied into what was you know are, are we going to play the Andy Leyland? Are you going to play the? Andy? Oh, trust me, the Andy Leyland. If 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 this were like a professional production and I had a button where I could put drops right into the live recording, I would totally be dropping Andy in. Like, <laughs> see, and I'm sure Andy would also like it to be a little more professional where he's paid every time you do it, but that's not going to happen. So sorry, Andy, uh, because believe me, if, if I could get paid for the Expositional News Network, I'd really like to. Blisteringly hot. But the thing is, or Jim, I like boobs ballot, um, which I'm so amused became a thing there for a while. Uh, the thing about it, though, is that they, it would always have what was really hot that month. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I applaud whoever was in their marketing department putting these things together. And two, they always had ads that made it seem like if you didn't get this, you were never going to have this come. Yeah, this is like, this is going to be the coolest thing. In fact, I have I have an issue with the I'm just laying here on the floor. So I picked it up and um, I flipped to an entertainment this month ad and you've got... Um, the an advertisement for Punisher Warzone number one. They say feature, features a die cut bullet cover, and that's the other thing. They played to the '90s sensibility of gimmicks. Oh yeah, and the violence. This new violent series, this bloody series, and stuff. They knew what the audience was going for, and they were totally shilling in a way that Mile High really wasn't. Mile High was just very very straightforward. It's almost as if, and I know this is a stupid comparison to say, to use, but it's almost as if Mile High was DC and Entertainment this month was Marvel of that era. And then image. Yeah, or Image. Yeah, it, that, that's totally like, you know, the old great, the, you know, the, the, the New York Times and USA Today. I mean, like that sort of, that sort of relationship. And there's an ad for X-Men card series one and, um, Featuring exclusive Jim Lee art, and uh, there will be five new hologram cards, and Jim Lee will be signing 1,000 randomly inserted cards. And they would limit you on certain ones of them, where it was, you know, where they tell you, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 361, Red Hot introducing a new Venom. 
Dark Hawk 13 and 14 new two-part story versus Venom Hot. And like, so they're they're teasing you with like all the things that, and sometimes they'd be like, you know, limit five on this and limit one on this. And that was another big selling point for them. Because A, they were tapping into the people who would um, buy five copies of something. But they were also making it seem that you who wanted the one copy was going to miss out. Yeah. This is important because people want to buy five copies of this. So I should buy at least one, maybe two if I have the money. And, you know, that is sound marketing, especially when the median age of the person buying the comic from you. I'm sure, I'm sure there was a lot of adults ordering this stuff, but, you know, we were teenagers. So oh, yeah. we were also part of that and we didn't know any better. Yeah. So, and, and, and we thought the party was going to last forever. I oh, mean, yeah. seriously, you know, in 1993, I was just like, wow, hell, look at all these places. Comics are being sold. It's like, this was a place that normally sold sporting equipment and memorabilia yeah. and stuff. And now they have a whole section with, uh, you know, selling all the new books and all that. I remember seeing at that place at the mall, just that Hawkman number one cover that with the gold foil. Yeah. Hawkman flying in the air. I was just yeah, I think I had that issue. Yeah, I, and it's one of those things where you look at those prices and you and you remember seeing the prices, and, and we're going to be talking about Wizard mm-hmm. a little more down the road. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And 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 you and you remember seeing all that and, and thinking how like God, I could never buy that. And then now you can just the worms turning a little bit on '90s books. Mm-hmm. Um. Some because of the more important ones, anyway. Yeah, because we're getting to the twenty year, and 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 really, it's going to be the the two twenties, the two thousand twenties yeah. that uh, I think are going to dictate. Because now eighties books are getting insanely uh, priced out of you know what, like ten years ago you could get for just a couple of bucks. Now is getting like ten fifteen dollars slapped on them, yeah, and, and such. So, kind of curious how that's going to turn for the nineties books. But then again, I sold my Guardians of the Galaxy number one to twenty-five by Jim Valentino for fifty cents an issue to somebody, and now I'm seeing them actually going for so much more. Mm-hmm. But the comic shop I go to literally had at one point an entire long box filled with Guardians of the Galaxy number one and another long box filled with New Warriors number one. Yeah. So I'm just kind of wondering how that's. Where it, that's going to end up. And I wonder if the stuff from the mid-90s and the late-90s might be slightly more valuable because they didn't have the massive print runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's really hard to find certain issues now. Yeah, and and um, yeah, so it'll be interesting, and, and, and we'll be getting to Wizard um, shortly on, on your show, but um, what, the thing about American Entertainment is they were saying they were very flashy, they yes. they really played things up. They played into the speculator boom. They were not the most reliable, and they got into like you said that we were talking about that that the two in one showcase story, talking about how you had your alternates. Did you ever order through them at all, or you just no? I never it? did. I yeah, did. and I placed maybe one or two orders, but I did tend to order from Mile High because I was just 
I trusted them more. I think the one order I had, I didn't feel burned because I got comics that I had put down, but I was just kind of like disappointed. Like, well, I was really hoping I'd get these other comics. And I remember them getting there. It took forever. And this was something that they actually got into legal trouble for um, in the mid-1990s, right after the comic book industry goes bust. Because I think you could point to about late 93, especially through 94 and into 95, is the bust. And I think Marvel files for bankruptcy in what, 95, 96? I think 96 is when Marvel started distributing themselves. Yeah. 95. Mm-hmm. And I think it was either 96 or 90. Was it 97 or 98 when they finally just went into chapter? Mm, okay. Maybe, yeah. So maybe so. I'm, I, my exact years for some things in, in terms of either business or even storylines sometimes are off by a year or two. Like there'll be things that came out in the very early 2000s where I'm like, I could have sworn that came out in 1998. But that's just my my memory. Anyway, but in the mid-1990s, um, right, after, right after the bus really starts to take hold, especially for some of the more independent publishers, like your Image, your Valiant, um, et cetera, the FTC orders Milo and American Entertainment slash Entertainment This Month, which was listed as American Distribution Incorporated too, and I copied and pasted this from the FCC press release, to pay $50,000 civil penalty and to exchange for cash as much as $150,000 to $200,000 worth of, quote, credit vouchers held by their customers under a settlement. The settlement resolves charges that the defendants, this is American Entertainment, who sell comic books and other entertainment novelties by mail, failed to ship merchandise within the time specified in their advertising. The FTC also alleged that the defendants failed to properly notify customers of their option to either consent to the delays or cancel their orders and receive prompt refunds, and that they had improperly issued company credits rather than refunds on canceled orders. These practices violate the FTC mail or telephone order merchandise rule, and the settlement prohibits the defense from defendant from violating the rules. So they got into trouble for the fact that they had crap service. You know, if, if your service is so bad that the Federal Trade Commission is getting involved, you have done something apocalyptically bad. Yeah. Yeah. And and they did they didn't handle it well because they, they got absorbed into another universe. Um, they were a regional retail outlet. And I remember this uh, you I started Amanda and I started dating in 1996. Okay. Um, we have been together for almost 20 years. And she grew up in Stafford, Virginia, which is um, American Entertainment was located in Warrington. There's about an hour between the two. And um, Stafford is on 95 uh, between, it's just south of Quantico, just north of Fredericksburg. And the Springfield Mall had another universe outlet. And she, we happened to be going to the mall one day and she's like, Oh, there was this comic store up there. I thought I'd take you to, and it had already closed down by then, but they, they kind of went under in the late nineties. Um, and there's a couple of, I found a couple of threads on forums and things that I would link to. There was this great ad and I'll put it on the show notes. Um, it was a, they threw a party for the wedding of Scott Summers and Jean gray. And somebody posted the the actual like graphic specific to the store so i'll i'll paste that it's just some really really interesting stuff but they eventually part partnered with various e-commerce companies uh, this doesn't survive the dot-com bust 
neither did I, um, but like eDrive, Mania, Fandom.com, and they finally officially bit the dust in 2001. And Steve Milo, but Steve Milo was worked for Marvel for a year. In 2000, he was named president of Marvel's new, uh, sorry, in 1999, he was named president of Marvel's new media division. He left that post in 2000, and now he's a, he went to e-commerce business development, and he is currently the founder, owner, and managing director of Vacation Rental Pros, a property management company that operates out of Ponte Verde Beach, Florida. Not, not even going to even make a joke about that, because I don't want litigation to happen. But uh, if a guy can't get comics straight, why? Anyways, uh, it's funny that you mentioned another universe, because in 1995, I moved from Pennsylvania to Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I left on November 22nd, because November 23rd was Thanksgiving. So I went down to Virginia to my sister's place for Thanksgiving, where I was meeting up with my dad, and my dad was going to take me down to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember we, I was up there, we were there for about five days. Um, you know, I, I, I left on a Wednesday, Thanksgiving was the next day. We went to D.C. at one point. And, and, and visited uh, the Smithsonian and, and stuff like that because we yes, used to do. do that all the time. Yeah. Uh, but I remember we went to a mall uh, where we were going to eat. And one of the things I had to do before I left Pennsylvania was I had to go to the comic shop and tell them that I was closing down my box because I was not going to be at the state anymore. And the guy's like, can you buy your comics? I'm like, I barely have enough money to get to Virginia. Uh, but my dad gave me money for some reason when I got there. And I remember we went to another universe. Hmm. I wandered in there and I bought, uh, like four, like three or four chapters of the trial of Superman storyline. Uh, they were the very first comics I bought outside of Pennsylvania on a regular basis. So, uh, Hmm. but I remember another universe because I remember specifically all the X-Files stuff they had. Because this was 95 when X-Files was kind of getting to its zenith of popularity. So that's kind of interesting that that's all connected. Yeah, and we didn't have another universe. There was a chain that we had in malls up in New York called Planet Comics. Um, And I remember, I don't know how big it was. I don't think it might have just been a regional thing. And it had... um, I may have bought an issue or two of something there. It's 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 weird if you start to go through your head all of the various comic shops you have been to and bought one or two things over yeah. the course of your career cuz like you you have your home base ones. Yes. And um I know yours has changed in the years since you've been in Georgia and the years since I've been in Charlottesville, there's only been one comic store Atlas, which is, you know, the, the same Pretty one. Nice show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do. I want to, there are times though, where I want to go up to the counter and say, Jake, you can give me store credit. You can not give me anything. I want to come in here for eight hours on a summer day and alphabetize your back issues. Cause it's driving me crazy. But that's the anal retentive has a hyphen person in me who just like, I did that I once. Fucking find uh, anything <laughs> because uh, you know when I moved to Georgia, I started going to Titans, and my friend Tom opened up a shop, and I mm-hmm. hung out at his shop for a little while. But, I went back <laughs> to Titans. but uh, several times during my, my my relationship with Titans, I would cheat on them. Uh, there was um, my father in law. Uh, 
it wasn't my father-in-law at the time. It was just the, the father of my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes, yeah, some guy I used to work with at the, at the place that he worked at opened up a comic shop. You might want to go check that out. And I, I, I love this man to death, but a lot of what he says goes in one ear and out the other, like literally just like, yeah. Um, but one day there was a, the most interesting thing about moving from Pennsylvania to Georgia comic book wise was one, a lot of the shops in the area either bagged or bagged in board to their new books. I had seen that once or twice and I always found that really odd. And I always found it really odd. There were a lot of stores that I've been to over the years where they bagged and boarded all of their back issues. Yeah. And I was just used to seeing them in bags and the occasional board, if whomever, when they bought the collection, they just kept it board, you know? Which is newer place uh, near where I work that just opened up in the last six months. It's why I, I, I kind of like them a little bit because the dude is from Reading, oh, Pennsylvania. Cool. So I was just like, so have you checked out any of the shops? He's like, yeah. I go, how weird is it that they're all bagged? He's like, I don't get that. So it's just like one of those things where regionally somebody got me suddenly. Mm-hmm. But uh, but there was there was the Titans over. Uh, it was College Park, but it wasn't really College Park. It was more mm-hmm. like Riverdale. And then there was a place called Fishers, uh, which was like an '80s style comic shop, uh, complete with wooden structures and smelled like old paper. Um, and there was this other place in, in, in nearby in the city called Jonesboro. I know everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about, so I, I feel comfortable in saying these names. Um, he said sarcastically. <laughs> uh, there was this place called Excalibur, and Mr. Youngblood, the guy that worked with my with Rachel's dad, um, bought the place from the guy that owned it before it. Now, the guy that owned it before it, I like knew him because the the funny thing about the people I hung out with when I first moved down here is a lot of them knew everybody in the comic book area. Hmm. So very early on in me moving to Georgia, I started meeting the owners of all these shops. And like Dave opened up his first shop in Fayetteville around this time. So I've literally been dealing with Dave of Dave's comics for almost 20 years now. So it's just like one of these things, but it was this dude and he had a comic shop and they also had a pretty thriving anime rental service back when that was a thing in comic shops. Yeah, there was a there was an, uh, a store in the Towson Town Center Mall up in Towson, Maryland that exclusively dealt in anime. And but Mr. Youngblood bought it and we just went in there one day just to check it out and suddenly there's a guy who owns a comic shop that knew my wife when she was knee high to a grasshopper. So, oh, wow. so, and I liked him a lot. He's a shorter than I am, but I have a feeling that he could rip me in half. Like I'm a phone. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I called him Gimli once. I thought he was going to punch me in the face. Um, but, but one day I'm like, I'm going to come up here and I'm going to organize your back stock. And he didn't believe me. And we literally, we showed up at like 10 in the morning and by two o'clock in the afternoon, I had his entire backstop alphabetized. I was a machine. That's awesome. So I I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) 
And it just it made me think of like I'm trying to think of like all the places I've been to, and I've been to a lot of different comic stores over the years, and some of them are forgettable. I've been to Midtown Comics in Manhattan a couple of times because I just happen to be in Manhattan, and it's not very far from Penn Station. And um, but I used to live above one because I lived in this high rise apartment building in Arlington that had an underground mall that was connected. It was connected to the yeah, it was connected to the Crystal City Metro Station, so it was built in like the 70s, and there was. Um, there was a Jeppy's comic world. Ooh. Yeah. And it was on its last legs. I think it was, we lived in Arlington. We lived in that apartment complex in Arlington for about four years. And by 2002, I think it was out of Jeppy's comic world there had closed. And I remember going there. I already had the place where I went for my, um, new comics. And I used to go to Big Planet Comics out in Vienna for trades because the, what they started doing was just stocking trades like crazy. So they had wall-to-wall trades. They had a really good trade selection. And Jeffy's Comic World, the back issues were a little too overpriced. I mean, it's no wonder these guys went out of business. They out of business. They didn't get a lot of foot traffic. But I remember when they were having their going out of business sale, it was like basically one of those all-you-can-carry-for-five-dollars type of thing. Like, you know. <laughs> and I got a I got a fair amount, but the thing was, it was all oh, it was like shitty nineties Marvel that I didn't care about. So I bought I bought a bunch of back I, I filled out some Batman's, some some nineties stuff from Batman and Detective and whatever I didn't have and paid about five or ten dollars for like the entire thing and I got a decent amount of comics. But it was just kind of funny that I lived above a comic store. Where I had a little bit of money, the comic store wasn't particularly great. Uh, it's, it was it's, huge, but Steve Jebby is another one who who comes up in a conversation about the history of comic book collecting, at least on the East Coast. But yeah, don't have the time to get into that. In, yeah, in the Baltimore area, yeah. Baltimore. But no, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because yeah. when F- Fishers went out of business about a year after I moved here, uh, which apparently was really sad because it was one of these things that had been in business since the eighties. Uh, but one day I was in there and I was just like, you know, he was having deep, deep discounts. So I was buying books that no one cared about. And he goes, you coming in here a lot. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I tell you what, you come in here again, that whole section over there, you can fill a long box for 50 bucks. And I'm like, sold American. So I got 50 bucks together and I brought my own long box. Not realizing he would have given me one. The long box. And, and he looked at me. He's like, what's that? I go, well, you told me I could fill a long box. So I brought one. He's like, you could have taken one of these. I'm like, well, that information would have been great. Yesterday. An hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like suddenly I'm Adam Sandler <laughs> in the wedding singer yelling at the girl that exactly. jilted at the altar. So. Exactly. But no, it's, it's kind of sad when you think about that, that, you know, when you think about the people involved with, with, with the American entertainment thing, it's like they were involved in all kinds of things that went bust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and part of it was the market. With the new media stuff, it was it – was, uh, I mean tech, the internet in the late 90s, there was a Wild West thing to it that um, Silicon Valley still tries to – to perpetuate from time to time. But like there are many, many, many people who 
rode the wave very high and then crashed very seriously in 1999 into 2000, 2001. And especially after 2001, 9-11 was like the final. Yeah, it was the final. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's just interesting that like when you're going through these nineties ads and you're going through these comics and you see people make jokes about it online or post pictures of entertainment this month covers because there's a valiant something or other on it. And when you look into it, it really is a, almost just this little microcosm of a, of a history point about the comics collect industry and, and collecting and retailing that we don't always get because we're so used to having, we're so used in our popular culture history to having things reduced to, you're right, that one, no pun intended, flashpoint event. Yeah. And, and any popular culture is the same way. You know, there are people who try to make it seem that never mind lay waste to the music industry and everything. There, it was like the, it was everything before Nirvana and after. It's like, no, if you look at what was coming out, it's not like that. It's much more slow to morph into that scene. And, and, um, you could say the thing, the same thing with the movie industry, uh, before and after like jaws and star Wars. And yeah, and I mean, there were, there, there were, there were popular films yeah. before jaws. Yeah. And you know what, because we live in a world that you know wants to boil everything down to a soundbite anyways exactly and because you know one of the great things you don't see them as much anymore but one of the great things about uh, comic book dvd you know comic book film dvds is they used to come with like really extensive documentaries on them mm-hmm. like there's a really good one on the spider-man one where they talk to everybody from john Romita to John Romita Jr., to Eric Larson, to Todd McFarlane, to John Byrne. I mean, if you touched Spider-Man at some point and they were able to get a hold of you, and there's a really good one on the Fantastic Four 1.5 DVD mm-hmm. uh, back when they did that for well, like were thing. seconds. Yeah. And, and, but when you do those, because you have to impart a large amount of information in a very short amount of time, there's this shorthand that that develops. And and and, and one of the the biggest examples I can think of that is hearing Jeff Johns talk about Jason Todd. Like yeah. he he mouthed off to Batman, and you just didn't do that. It's like Jeff, whoa, 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 back back yeah. the truck up, okay? Because. Yeah. It's a little more complicated than that. And why can't you just say, well, they created this new Jason Todd. He was a Dick Grayson clone. Uh, people liked him, but they wanted to go in another direction. And that's the, that's the Jason Todd they killed. There, in, t- in, in, in six sentences, I broke it down. But- well, I mean, in most to- comic book documentaries, the only thing of significance that happened between... 19 you know between the death of Gwen Stacy and we're only talking comics and not movies the death of Gwen Stacy and then whatever's going on now were Watchmen The Dark Knight Returns and the death of Superman that's it yeah <laughs> it's but, like and they gloss over so much of and, the and, recent history and it's the same with what happened and yeah. what happened was this People found out that you could make money on comics. Comic book companies started feeding into that, which created 
more of a buzz. Mm-hmm. Artists started getting really popular, and the t- the sales on their titles started going up and up and up. Yeah. So more people get into the business of selling comics, which prompts the the companies to start putting more stuff out, which prompts people to want to buy more. So it's you know, like you're you're getting basically this perfect storm, where eventually the center won't hold. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, the image guys were millionaires instantly. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, it took a couple years to get off the ground. Their first issues made them millionaires. Yeah. And when you have that kind of money flowing around, people are going to want to try to take advantage of it. And at some point, though, F you, Max Landis, but at some point, people are going to go, I'm just not into this anymore. Yeah. And I oh, well, I can't move this stuff like I used to be able to move this stuff. And suddenly no one's buying the material, but the companies are still kicking it out, and that's when you get the big bust. And and the bust happened in 93. Yeah. You really started feeling the effects in 95. Mhm. And it really wasn't until like 99 2000 that we were really starting to crawl out of that. Yeah. But what's interesting is in that time period, you've got some of these amazingly awesome runs of books mm-hmm. because the, the the companies were trying to do things to garner interest. And this is why 1996, and when we get into views, why 1996 is so important. Because to me, 96 is the year it starts to turn around. Yeah, and that, I think, is where we're going to leave this episode. Ooh. On a tease. Yeah. So why don't you tell everyone, A, where we can find the next part to this, and B, um, where we can find you in general, and then I will take us home. Well, um, you can uh, just head on over to www.viewsfromthelongbox.com or open up you know, iTunes uh, and look for Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box because there's a couple different feeds because I didn't know what I was doing there for a while. Um, but... Uh, the, on a very, I don't know what episode number it's going to be because we're kind of recording this ahead of time, not Trentus mm-hmm. Magnus style. Basically, when this episode comes out, you can go over to viewsfromthelongbox.com and find the episode that's following it because we're going to be talking about one of the other players in the 90s comic book marketplace Yes, uh, that a lot of people like to make fun of, and we're going to be doing a fair bit of that. Um <laughs> But you can also go over to FortressOfBailey2.com and find From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I do with Jeffrey Taylor, where, oddly enough, we're in the middle of the 90s there, uh, talking about Superman books. We basically cover all of the post-crisis Superman books uh, about a half month at the time at this point. And we're getting to the point where there's so many books to talk about, it's kind of getting a little overwhelming. Uh, And every Tuesday night at uh, 10 30 eastern standard time you can head over to the superman homepage and listen to radio kal live where steve Eunice and i take live callers and talk about the latest in the world of superman and on the two true freaks network which this part this show is a part of you can go to even though we haven't done one in quite some time you can go to old episodes of comics monthly monday and tales of the justice society of america and hear me and scott gardner and chris honeywell talking about comics 
All right. Well, thank you again for coming on. And, and Oh, thank you for having me. And I'll see you over at Views. Uh, for everybody else, uh, after you go listen to Views for Longbox, come, from the Longbox, come back here. Uh, next episode, as of this recording, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it'll be something completely random. And uh, in the meantime, do go to popcultureaffidavit.com for links to articles, um, pictures, other show notes associated with this. There was a for the American comics portion, I found a lot of information, a lot of old links, a lot of old articles and things. And if you want to read a little bit deeper, I'll, I'll be providing links and things for there. And until then, uh, as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Under the ground that comes.